last night that I was preaching today. Um, so this sermon was originally preached uh, in August of 2003. How many of you were here then? Uh, about half. So I'm sure you will remember it all in great detail. No. I don't know why everybody's laughing. <laughs> but we definitely need to pray, so let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for this time. We ask that you would uh, touch a rich coffin with your healing hand, uh, that you would heal him and bring him back to us soon. Be with him and his family, uh, Lord, and protect this, them from uh, this uh, illness. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time here, that as we open God's word, we would learn uh, what you would have for us this morning, that it would make a difference in our lives. We ask that you would enable us to focus now on your word and on your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're going to want to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah. So, fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. So, if you go uh, uh, to the, between the Old and New Testament and go back, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, and then Zephaniah. And we're going to read it as we go through. It's three chapters. We're doing the whole book today. So, we're going to read and going to have to skip a few parts here and there, but we'll catch... Uh, all the major pieces as we go through. So, nope, there's no outline. You don't have it, you know, so you're going to have to actually uh, open your Bibles and follow along. That's a good thing. I have a computer program um, called Clean Sweep. And uh, what it does is every so often it's supposed to go through your hard drive and clean it up and throws out everything that's in the recycle bin and all the saved junk and the internet uh, cache file and deletes the old cookies and so on and so forth. And the idea is to sweep away all the old bad stuff so your computer will run more quickly and more efficiently and more smoothly, in theory. So that's the idea. And the opening words of Zephaniah present the imagery of God about to sweep away all things in solemn judgment. The prophet Zephaniah is commissioned by God to prepare a faithful remnant of people for days of terrible distress in the coming wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. Picture God standing on the back porch it's strewn with leaves that have been blown in by the wind. And he has a giant broom in his hand. And he begins to sweep away the pile of leaves, sweeping them off the porch. But close up, we see it's not leaves that he is sweeping. It's people. Sinning people litter his porch. And he is about to sweep them from the deck of his presence. Here is the creator about to destroy his creation, the maker undoing his work. 
Now, have you ever been working at your computer on something really important? Spending a lot of time writing something, perhaps a proposal for work or a paper for school, maybe even a sermon. And all of a sudden, your computer just freezes, breaks down, closes the program, or even gives you that dreaded blue screen of death. And you had forgot to hit the save command. And whatever you were working on is gone. I have sermons where the last few pages are written out by hand because of such things. Now imagine the creator is pressing the do not save command and the screen of his computer going blank. And creation is about to vanish from the screen of God's presence. And this modern technical update of the imagery of Zephaniah heightens the issue. God is about to destroy what he has made. It is a clean sweep. And so we'll start with words of judgment, Zephaniah chapter 1. Words of judgment. Despite many predictions to the contrary, we're still here. (coughs) Excuse me. We've had uh, the threat of nuclear war, the threat of Y2K, some of you remember that, and the ongoing threat of politics. And I'm afraid that some people think that because nothing has happened yet, it never will. That the world will just always go on as it always has before. What if you uh, became convinced that the God of this universe will take it apart bit by bit, that death would come to you personally, that you'll have to give an accounting for your life? There are some serious questions that need to be asked and answered. Are we ready to stand before God? Is there some kind of insurance that we can take out to ensure our safety before God? Could we get by by going to church? All these issues are taken up in this passage from Zephaniah. Not to be accused with, uh, uh, confused with Zechariah, who's another prophet. A century earlier... Other prophets, the 8th century prophets, there's quite a number of them, they have prophesied the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that happened. And now God is speaking again. It's the late 7th century. It means it's about approximately 630 B.C. And God has given warning to the southern kingdom of Judah. Why? Well, the northern kingdom vanished. God brought judgment against them. They were conquered. They were taken away, never to be heard from again. The southern kingdom was pretty sure that wouldn't happen to them. They had Jerusalem. They had the temple, the first temple. Uh, They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had all the good stuff. And because they had that, they were pretty sure they were safe, that God wasn't going to do that to them. But these words of judgment are coming to them now. And whose words are these? There's two answers to that question. First, there's Zephaniah. We know uh, nothing else about him except what we find here in this 
uh, beginning of Zephaniah 1, that he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. That's about it. But they're also God's words. These words are understood to be the word of the Lord that came through Zephaniah. And what are those words? They are words of judgment. The words of the uh, opening oracle of God through the prophet Zephaniah speak of a complete reversal of God's creation. Look at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah. I stumble over that one. I don't know why. Son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And this passage calls to mind those ordered works of divine power described in Genesis 1. People, animals, birds, fish are listed there in the opposite order from creation. And now it will all disappear in Israel. There'll be nothing left in God's judgment, even his own people. He is clearly and specifically judging his own people. An idea that would be shocking to the Jews at the time. To the nation of Judah. And in this passage, he gives them several commands. And the first one, uh, verses 4 through 9, is be silent. That's the first command he gives them, be silent. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire on that day. I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. A time of special importance is at hand. Essentially what we're told is show respect. Be quiet. Shut up. That's about as harsh or as strong a command as we can get in the Old Testament. Do you ever feel the kind of awe that inspires silence? Have you ever seen something that was so stunning it just left you speechless? I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I lived in the Netherlands that year. I went to American International High School and my high school soccer team traveled to Paris for a tournament against other international schools there. And they had set some time aside so we could go sightseeing. So the players from the American International School in Paris served as our hosts, and they took us out to see Paris. And I remember coming out of the metro and walking down the street with my guide, another high school student. He was pointing out various things to me, and he said, 
stop. And we're kind of looking at this street in Paris. And he said, okay, turn around. And I turned around, and right behind me stood the Eiffel Tower. It was huge. I'm sure my eyes were huge. And I was stunned into silence. It was just amazing. There's been lots of those incidents in my life. I remember coming back from Europe by boat and coming into New York. And my dad saying, let's go up to the bow, up to the front. And coming into the New York Harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty from the deck of a ship, like thousands and thousands of immigrants have done over the years, stunned into silence. Seeing your bride walk down the aisle, stunned into silence. Watching the birth of your kids, stunned into silence. In 1991, I went to uh, Vad Yashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It was stunning, overwhelming, emotionally crushing. You not only couldn't talk, you could barely breathe. That's the kind of silence that Zephaniah wants us to have before God. I mean, every kind of awe is degraded in our culture. And you need to have a sense of awe to understand this book. Such silence is commanded here. God will judge his own people, his chosen people, to show his justice. Why would he do this? They're being judged for having kind of an omnitolerant religious syncretism. It simply means they're tolerant of all religious views all blended together. Sounds a lot like our culture. They're being judged for worshiping the sun, moon, and the stars and for worshiping God along with Molech called Milcom here and an inclusive policy of worship like a lot of liberal churches do today. But God knows that this is just unbelief in the true God expressed in a politically correct way. And they allowed the influence of foreign gods so that they were following pagan customs, which allowed all sorts of idolatry and immorality. Has that happened in the American church? Yeah, just pick up any paper. They're religious to the point of superstition, but embraced violence and deceit. Verse 9. Are there people in churches today who embrace superstition and believe the lies that they themselves tell? Oh yeah. They're being judged from turning back from following God and not inquiring of him. It's not only the outward acts that matter. Simple religious observances can stand in the way of true Christian religion. There's a lot of churches today that are simply irreverent. They don't take worship seriously. And it may seem they don't take God seriously and they don't take his word seriously. Remember the warning from James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks on himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pretty tough words from James. But to go to the other side, there's a lot of even formal traditional churches today that are just going through the motions. And despite, despite being surrounded by deep theological liturgies and hymns, that doesn't seem to have any impact on their lives. But they think they're okay because they do all the old stuff. And we may like lots of things about religion and still have an indifference to God and even a dislike for God himself. Now, as a church that strives to be warm and friendly, and yet at the same time, we strive to take worship seriously, to take hearing God's word seriously, and to take God himself seriously, we have to listen to these warnings. May we not be among those who think they are religious and so deceive themselves. We place a high value on the process of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we're merely doing church, we're just like the people of Judah. The sacrifice referred to in verse 7, the great slaughter, would be the people of Judah. God's going to cut off the wicked, even those who go to church. And usually we use the phrase, be silent, to signal that it's time for quiet reflection. We hear passages such as Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Or Psalm 46.10, be silent and know that I am God. But there's a problem in these comforting words. They're not supposed to comfort us. They're supposed to put our teeth on edge. It's a call to hush in the presence of the great sovereign of all creation. There are words that announce impending judgment. It's a command to hush because of the horrors of the judgment to come. We just saw in Revelation with the trumpets, right before the trumpets that were going to announce the judgment, what happened? We were told there was silence in heaven. Heaven is not normally a place of silence, but before such, uh, before such a God and before such a judgment, we must be silent. And when we're silent and God has our complete and undivided attention, we're told to wail. To wail. Look at verses 10 through 13. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. From the walls of Jerusalem, from inside of Jerusalem, and from outside of Jerusalem. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste, Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. God says he will wipe them out and destroy their wealth. There's a seeker-sensitive passage for you. 
In the preceding verses, Zephaniah said God will judge his people for their inclusive worship. And in these verses, he says he will judge them for believing too little. He will judge them for their skepticism. He doesn't condemn them for their trade, but for their complacency. They're self-satisfied, and they're able to understand and pardon their own faults. They're compared to wine left on the drag, stuff that sits unmoved, coagulated at the bottom of the barrel, and threatens to make the rest of the wine undrinkable. And this image of themselves reflects how they think of God. They'll do nothing, either good or bad. You seem to be religious. After all, you're here in church listening to this sermon. But does your religion have much to do with your life? I think churches today are filled with practical atheists. Someone who talks as if there's a God, but lives as if there isn't. Do you really believe uh, in God and that he has an agenda and that he has concerns and that he has a will? Admittedly, this is not the passage uh, that people want to go to when they're thinking about their future. Furthermore, the issues of this section of Zephaniah hardly relate to us today. These issues concern ostentatious wealth, pagan practices, defrauding the poor, complacently denying the reality of God and the affairs of men has little to do with us. And if you think that, God says it's time to wail in sorrow. He's not going to let that go on. And when you finish wailing, when the tears don't come anymore, when no sound comes out of your mouth because the wailing has made it hurt too much, then God says, listen. Listen, verses 14 through 18. Be silent, then wail, now listen. And we're going to get that in Zephaniah. Quiet, loud, quiet, loud. It's going to go back and forth. Maybe you've noticed something about Zephaniah so far. It doesn't seem that the prophets are very nice, does it? I mean, nice is an important word in our culture. We're drawn to nice people, especially if they have nice children and they live in a nice house, they drive a nice car, and we like them. They're nice. We're repelled by those who are not nice. Sometimes we don't listen to those who are right because we don't think they're very nice. Zephaniah is not very nice. He has begun with stunning words of judgment that were left shocked and reeling, and if that wasn't enough, now he walks up and he swings a verbal fist right into our solar plexus, knocking the wind out of us, and before we can catch our breath, he hits us again. Zephaniah is the Rambo of Old Testament prophets. And he says, listen, because God is about to bring judgment on his people. His words are a classic expression of God's wrath. Take a deep breath. Let's read these slowly, starting at verse 14. Some of this will sound familiar from our studies in Revelation, and it's supposed to. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the Lord is uh, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind 
so they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. God will judge anything and anybody who distorts the truth about himself. Zephaniah says that what people have done here, verse 17, is sin against the Lord. (coughs) And the description here is terrible, and it's meant to be. There is no, or there shouldn't be any true Christian who enjoys another's misery. That's not why we talk about hell. It's because we have to acknowledge the truth, what God himself says. We don't want to make it seem less horrible than it actually is. Scripture was not given just to please us. Some of the strong stuff in the Bible is given for our warning, and for it to work, it has to make us uncomfortable. What did you imagine the day of the Lord, that last day, would be like? Did you ever think of the sounds that you would hear on the great and terrible day of the Lord? According to Scripture, these verses 14 and 16, there will be sounds of crying bitterly mixed in with trumpet calls and battle cries. In verse 15, there are six descriptions of that day just as there were six days of creation. We have a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of ruin, a day of darkness, a day of clouds, a day of trumpet blast. Zephaniah didn't come up with this. When the northern kingdom fell to Israel, uh, or the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria, Israel described uh, the people like this. Isaiah described them. Isaiah chapter 8. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Zephaniah has already seen this. He knows how this story goes. The Lord had predicted it through Moses way back when. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses listed the curses that will come upon those who don't obey God. They're on the edge of the promised land, and he said, if you follow me, we cross into the promised land. Amazing blessings. But if you don't obey me, if you forget the Lord your God and do not follow his law and walk in his ways, picking up at verse 49, Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, From the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls 
in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And skips down to verse 65. And among those nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will, will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. The New Living translates the end of that verse. And the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. And these curses have found their fulfillment in the books of Zephaniah and Jeremiah. They were contemporaries. They began preaching in 627 B.C. And they're still there when the Babylonians came to town in 587 B.C. They preached about this for 40 years before God brought this judgment. And when that judgment came upon Jerusalem, it came with unbelievable severity. For three years, the city was under siege, cut off from the outside world. And when the food ran out, they starved. And in the mournful book of Lamentations, Jeremiah describes in great detail the death of his people. That book is written as a funeral poem for the uh, people of Jerusalem. It's a complex acrostic. The whole book. It's a funeral poem lamenting the death of Jerusalem. And in Lamentations chapter 4, everything Moses warned about came true. It was a time of great horror. And here in our verse, Zephaniah says, because they've sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The poem dies array, the day of wrath, is used in the Roman Catholic Mass for the Dead. It's based on this passage. Could the Lord be any more emphatic about his judgment? Now, despite most of the book of Zephaniah continuing to describe the awful judgment of God, he moves from Judah to the people that surround Judah, and he says, even though I'm going to use them, they don't get off the hook. They're ungodly. They're going to be judged too. In fact, everybody's going to be judged. Nobody gets off the hook. But there's a dramatic change in direction. And the first one, there's actually two big changes. First one comes in chapter 2. And we move from words of judgment to words of hope. Words of judgment to words of hope. Chapter 2. Zephaniah tells him to gather, starting at verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Here in this shameless nation, 
What he says is, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless goy. That's the Hebrew word by which they described all the unbelieving nations. All those unbelieving nations were the goyim because they were unbelieving. They weren't the chosen people. And God calls them goy, the name for the unbelieving people. And shameless. You shameless goy. You shameless, unbelieving nation. And he tells them to gather together like straw to be burnt, prepare for judgment. But praise God, that's not all he says. Because once they've gathered together to pray, he tells them what to pray about. He says, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Three times he tells them to seek. Seek the Lord. Practically, what kind of advice is this? Doesn't this seem strange to seek the source of their destruction? But where else could the answer come from? Their wealth can't save them. Their ancestry can't help them. Humility can help. Seeking admits you don't have something that requires humility. <clears throat> People don't want to be seen seeking, especially here in Northern Virginia. <clears throat> And humility is a sense of neediness before God. Righteousness can help. Righteousness is needed beyond our own. We see in Christ a perfect righteousness which God counts to us if we repent of our sins, trust in him, and follow him. And if we're to be saved, we know it is through him. In Christ there's hope. We read these verses in Sunday school this morning, Romans 1. Verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul writes... I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Zephaniah says, seek righteousness. These are unexpected words. In a passage of unrelieved severity come all of a sudden tender words of hope and mercy and grace and escape. The judgment is so strong and so unrelenting, we're simply left unprepared for an offer of grace. Here in verse 3, this is the high point of the whole book. Here is the gospel in the Old Testament prophet. Seek the Lord. Judgment's coming. Seek the Lord. Judgment's coming. Seek righteousness. Judgment's coming. Seek humility. In the midst of a dreadful setting, we get great hope. And then comes this subtle phrase at the end of that verse. 
Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's a wordplay on the meaning of Zephaniah's own name. Zephaniah is built on two Hebrew words, a verb meaning to hide, and the proper name of God, Yahweh. Zephaniah means hidden by God. For all his wrath, with all his power and all his majesty, the God of the Bible delights in being known as a hiding place for his people. He says, perhaps you may be Zephaniah. That's literally what he's saying. You may be hidden by God on the day of his anger. When you do that, when you seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness, seek the shelter of the Lord, when in days of darkness and despair you want with all your heart to be Zephaniah, hidden by God, then God does something remarkable. God gives you something remarkable. We see that God gives words of delight. We've gone from words of judgment to words of hope to words of delight. You know, one of my favorite movies is this uh, Kevin Costner baseball movie. All of my favorite movies are baseball movies, but that's not entirely true. There's a couple others. Um, but it's called For the Love of the Game. And it's about a pitcher named Billy Chappell at the end of his career. And he's pitching his last game. He pitches for the Detroit Tigers, and they're playing in his last game ever, and they're playing in Yankee Stadium. And he realizes suddenly in the bottom of the eighth inning, he's going out to pitch at the bottom of the eighth inning, no one's gotten on base yet. He has a perfect game going. No hits, no walks, no errors, nobody's hit by a pitch, no drop third strike, no catcher's interference. No one has gotten to first base. And when he realizes he's six outs from a perfect game, he starts to panic. So his catcher comes out, Gus, played by the great actor John Riley, comes out to the mound and says, Billy, do you believe it? I've been playing a long time. I've never been a part of anything like this. And Billy looks at him and says, Gus, I don't have anything left. And Gus points to the field all around him and all the other guys on the team, and he says, we're here for you, Billy. You just throw whatever you got. We'll do the rest. We're going to be awesome against them. And of course they are. They make great catches and amazing dives to snag line drives and brilliant plays and great throws to nail every runner and no one gets to first. The fact that they're doing it against the Yankees makes it great. <laughs> we're gonna be awesome against them. And they were. And here in Zephaniah verse 11 chapter two, the Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Yahweh's intention to bring judgment is not evil. It is always good. And it will turn the people, all the people everywhere, to the true worship of the true God. And in this splendid text, judgment is seen as an act of God's severe mercy. And after that judgment comes, and it will be terrible, the people will return to the Lord and seek him and seek righteousness. And Ze Zephaniah tells us, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, 
but I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, so they're, they're, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." How does the Bible prepare you for times of pain? How does the Bible prepare you for times of judgment? By giving you more Bible. By showing you where to find hope. And the Lord is speaking words of delight. He's on speaking words on the other side of judgment. He's speaking words after judgment has forced everyone to return to him and seek him and to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And now established in their lives and in their minds and on their tongues as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus turns to his people and commands them to sing. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And we sing because the Lord himself, the King of Israel, is among us. He lives in us. He's in our midst. Here is the reason for our singing and our rejoicing in worship. It is knowing that Christ is here. He is near the prophets delight to speak of this day, and no prophet says it better than Zephaniah. These verses are amazing because after the prophet reveals the command of God that his people rejoice and sing for joy, then he tells us about another singer, the Lord himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, sings over you. Verse 16, chapter 3 on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. After all we've read of God's furious wrath, his raging fire, his zeal for righteousness, here is a verse in the very same book that presents a truth that's almost too good to believe. God takes pleasure in his people. He rejoices over those who return to him out of darkness. He lives with you with great gladness. He is the singer. And in verses 18 and 19, he sings songs of healing. He dresses all wounds, rights all wrongs, restores his people. And then he promises, verse 20, at the end, at that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The story of Zephaniah reminds me of the great promise of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This was written before he's about to send them into exile. The Babylonians are camped outside the wall. They're about to pull the wall down. Daniel and his buddies are going to get shipped a thousand miles away, and they'll walk. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Verse 
Words of judgment, words of hope, words of delight. How do they work in our life today? Perhaps another story will help. Ron Allen is a preacher. I've quoted him extensively today. Tells the story of driving from Seattle, Washington to Portland, Oregon, where he lives. It was late on a Friday night. And he writes, he was listening to a talk radio program, one of those advice shows that people call in. And the voice of a young woman caught his attention. Her story began eight years earlier. She met and fell in love with a man. And it's a story with a lot of rough edges. But it's a story of our time. You see, the man was married, but he was in the process of getting divorced. So they decided to move in together uh, while they were waiting for the divorce to be finalized. Shortly after that happened, this man's mother called this young woman and screamed at her, blamed her for the breakup of her son's marriage. In reality, she hadn't entered the picture until after they filed for divorce, but the mother wasn't buying it. And as a consequence of her anger, the man's mother and this young woman never met. Time passed. The divorce was finalized. A new wedding day was set. And then the man, before they're able to get married, is killed in a car accident. True story. Now the young woman is alone again. And she's pregnant. She decides to move back home to be near family when her son is born. And he becomes the center of her life. She lavishes her love on him, constantly remembering her love for his father. And then suddenly... Her parents die, leaving her alone once again. It's just her and her son. And she thought, you know, I'm not really alone. The boy has a grandmother, even though she doesn't even know about him. So she moved back to the city where she met his father, and she got a job at the same place where the grandmother worked. And it turns out they became good friends. They enjoyed the time they spent together. And the older woman loved to visit with the little boy. And now this woman is on this nationally aired talk radio show asking, how am I going to tell her that the darling little boy she makes such a fuss over is really her grandson? And the talk show host told her, well, she couldn't just say, oh, by the way, that's your grandson. It's going to have to work up to it. And he suggested this woman invite the grandmother over for dinner one night. And he said, tell her this will be one of the most important dinners of her life. Tell her to be prepared for a shock. And the woman said, okay, I'll call her right now. And at that point, Ron figured he'd never know how the story turned out. And he was so caught up in its basic humanity, it was all he could think about as he drove home. And he prayed that God would be gracious to them, that he would calm all her fears, that he would rejoice over her with great gladness. And then he heard the woman's voice again. And he actually had to turn around and head back in the other direction so he wouldn't lose the reception of the radio station. The woman called back, which is really unheard of on these kind of talk shows, and she said, you won't believe this. I called just as you said I should. And I told her I wished to invite her to my home for dinner next week, and I had something very important to tell her. And as I said that, she screamed out, It was you! That's my grandson! Turns out she was listening to the very same talk show. 
She hadn't recognized the woman's voice, but she had thought to herself, whoever she calls will be the happiest woman in the world tonight. I wish it could be me. And it was. God had stepped into a situation of hurt and despair and sin and done a wonderful work of grace in the lives of those people. And when you seek the Lord and you seek humility and righteousness and the shelter of the Lord in days of darkness and despair and you want with all your heart to be Zephaniah hidden by God, then God gives you something remarkable God works in our lives as an act of free grace. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's the great promise of those, um, for those who are Zephaniah, hidden by God. The story of Zephaniah reminds me of another great promise. We read it in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are called to burn down our own self-righteousness, to force us to rely on Christ alone for his grace and his forgiveness. Our holy God is our only hope. Flee from your sin and self-righteousness and turn to Christ because judgment is coming. Flee to the house of Christ's righteousness. The righteousness that is from God. The God who took all the sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. And when you do that, Zephaniah says, he will rejoice over you with singing. And all who want that said, amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And I'll close. Heavenly Father, everybody in this room has more sin than, than we would want people ever to know about. And we don't understand you. We don't understand judgment. But Lord, we need to understand it. And we need the, the word of the law to convict us of sin and drive us to Christ. And Lord, I pray you would drive each and every one of us to Christ for his grace and his forgiveness. That he would be our blessed hope, that we would be clothed in his righteousness and not our own. Do that among us, do that for us, do that in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.